Now, let's get to the important part. I hope you came in the door already worshiping and ready to open the Word of God, which, my beloved, while you're finding in your copy of the Scriptures, Ephesians chapter 6, I hope you're ready to open the Word of God and listen carefully, for it is God speaking to us. And I don't believe we ought to ever take that lightly, but extremely seriously, because it is the lofty creator of the universe who is reaching down to us where we live. And in language that we can comprehend and understand, he makes his will and gives us his hope as clearly as he possibly can. And I always look forward to these brief minutes that seem long to some of you, I'm sure, these brief minutes in the Holy Word of God. Now, having said that, um, I want to make a couple of comments about the purpose for this series. I said early on that it's born out of a weariness in my own heart of watching too many of God's people lose in their battles, though the war is won in the end by Jesus Christ. I think it's a disturbing thing that percentage-wise nearly as many marriages fail in Christendom as outside of it. I told you just a couple of weeks ago that one in our own family after 40 years of marriage has walked away from a marriage relationship. And it isn't Elaine who's left me. I think it's pretty sad that people can sit under the ministry of the Word of God and know the principles of holy writ that help us in our most important earthly horizontal relationship with our spouses and still fail in the end. I think that doesn't just say something about marriages and God's people. I think it says something about what's not being addressed in the average church. And by the way, in the state that we live in now with what an activist federal judge has just done, you can write it down. The evil one is at work destroying the traditional relationship, marriage relationship, that God established in the beginning. I believe it's time we stand up, and it's okay to say it's not okay for an activist judge to strike down a law in this state or in this nation that says only a man and woman can be married. That is a Bible principle. Now, that doesn't mean we don't love the gay crowd, right? And that doesn't mean that their core problem is that they are having sexual relationships with one of their own kind, meaning man to man and woman to woman. That's not the core problem, and we don't need to be thundering against that issue, for if the real issue were addressed, that would be handled. And what is the real issue? You only get to that level according to the book of Romans in the marriage relationship 
you only get to that level by denying the existence and the authority of God in life. The moment you do that, you free yourself up to be your own authority and do anything else you want. And by the way, we're all born with that core problem. I'll be my own authority, not God. Right? So all of this is born out of a weariness of people losing in the battle. Sort of weary of losing students and young adults. Losing them to a drug culture. Or losing them to the passions of this present life. Or losing them to even, are you listening? Technology in our culture. When they sit down and are more interested in texting with each other than they are in hearing the word of God, it is, I believe, an enemy that is winning in their lives. And that grieves me. That breaks my heart. I love our kids. And I want them to win in the battles of life. You don't win by replacing God with stuff. We've taught them you do, but we don't. And I can talk about so many other areas where I'm weary of losing, but let me turn it and say it's also born out of a passion to say to those who may be here this morning and you have no idea whether it's the couple in front of you or beside you or across the room from you, but I, pro- I guarantee you there are people in this room whose marriages are falling apart. And the question that has to be asked, and by the way, there are students in this room whose relationships with God couldn't be further apart today than uh, any other point in their lives. Can I say to you, I believe our text gives to students and marriages and all of us hope. And we ought to be celebrating the victory that we already have in and through and because of Christ. We ought to be able to say, come sit by me. And by the way, if your marriage is falling apart right now, Dad, take the lead. Husband, take the lead. You're responsible for your home. And come and sit down with me and my bride and let us teach you some things God's taught us about how to deal with sinful people like she has to deal with and like I have had to deal with. We all do, my beloved. There's hope. Don't let your marriage be destroyed by the evil one. I plead with you, there's hope in what we've been studying. Now I bring you to the next. It's actually the last in the list of things we're told to pick up. And I've got to pick up the pace in doing this. Stand. Verse 17b of chapter 6. Stand. That word is actually verse 14 and is the first of a run-on sentence that runs through verse 20. Stand. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now let's break it down as we've been doing every week. Break it down a word at a time. The word stand is very clear. 
It's a word that communicates to us that there is absolutely no excuse for losing ground in the war. And as I taught you last Lord's Day, every war is a battle over territory. Russia has moved through Crimea, and my beloved, she's annexed her and overtaken a territory that the world did not recognize belonged to her. You think she's done? She's on the southern border and eastern borders of uh, Ukraine and is ready to move in, poised to move in. And it grieves my heart that our nation has no idea what to do about that. Let me help you. No, let's move on. Next, they're saying, is Estonia. And where will he stop after that? Battle after battle over territory. And by the way, the final battle of this world is over territory called the Holy Land. And that's when our Lord will return and end battles over territory. In the Old Testament, the wars were fought, battles were fought over territory. A land was promised to Israel by the creator of the universe. And listen, God can give whatever section of this globe he chooses to anyone he pleases. And he gave to Israel the promised land. And in order to move into that land, and by the way, the promised land does not represent heaven. You don't have to fight to win heaven. Christ already fought to win it for you. The promised land represents the battle for territory in this world. Battle with the evil one over land. And I suggest to you they moved in in the Old Testament to fight the Gideonites, the Perizzites, the uh, Hittites, the Hivites, and whatever ites are out there they fought. They went after them. The problem is they didn't drive them out when God told them to and it brought them down because they failed to win fully the territory. And I hope you're with me. And in this New Testament age of grace, he said to the church, you're in a battle for territory, a world that the evil one is described as the God of. He's the God, small g, of this world. When the creator of the heaven and earth, our God, possesses what he made, it belongs to no other. But there is a usurper on the throne. And it's him that we are battling. And our text shouts it out loudly and clearly. There's no reason to lose territory to this enemy. Why? Because God offers to us his superior strength and his superior armor. And then the next word, it's another verb that calls us to do something, take. And it's not the word that is used previously in the text that says take up the whole armor of God. Some translations place the word take there and it doesn't belong there, but it's not the same word. It's a different one in this 17th verse, and I taught it to you last week. It really is better translated receive. 
and receive as a gift, you were told. Listen, when you're given a gift, nobody just leaves it wrapped up and throws it in the closet. Do they? When I gave my bride-to-be an engagement ring on Christmas 45 years ago, she didn't take it home, take it off her finger and put it in her drawer. She did what every engaged gal does the next morning. She walked around the office at work. Look what I have gotten. How dreadful to be given a gift of the helmet of salvation and now today the sword of the Spirit. How dreadful to be given a gift and to walk out into battle without that superior gift that brings down the evil one. It's absolutely absurd for us to walk out in a day without the armor that he gives to us. And what is that next piece of armor? It is the... What? This is not an umbrella. The sword of the Spirit... I told our small group last Sunday night I was preaching on this subject today and one of the members of our small group, uh, Gene Morrison, said, our connection group, said, I have a sword and it's stamped on it when it was made, 1833. A Spartan sword, 181 years old. It is uh, quite similar to what you see on the screen, that first century sword. It's a double-edged thing. I thought about bringing a watermelon, <laughs> a cantaloupe, a grapefruit, an orange, and a cherry. And having Elaine stretch out across the platform <laughs> and let me practice one at a time, starting from the biggest to the smallest. How many would trust me? No, I wouldn't either. This is a lot like that first century sword that we are told in Scripture is a gift from God that enables us to win in the battle. And I want you to see how it is that it's so effective, so efficient, so sufficient that there's no reason for you to lose ground or lose in this daily battle with the evil one. We start with this. It is the sword of the Spirit. It's not the word, I think it's Ramphia, which is the large four to five foot sword that a cavalryman or a chariot man in the first century wars would carry as they rode the horses and the chariots and needed to reach out a long way to attack the enemy. This sword is the one needed for hand-to-hand -hand combat, and the large one is too cumbersome. When I'm in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the enemy, and don't forget who the enemy is, the evil one, Satan, when I'm in hand-to-hand -hand combat with him, I need this short thing that's much easier to handle. And it primarily is for the purpose of thrusting. And before you think ahead on that, let me just say, what value is a sword when the enemy wears armor like we do? 
In the first century, they wore this wire mesh thing covered with leather, and no sword, no matter how sharp, will thrust through those uh, pieces of armor, that breastplate, and all that is there to protect from the sword. What value is it? Oh, I can tell you what value it is because it's not just a sword that is like the enemy's armor and sword that he carries or armor to protect against it. It is superior to the enemy's sword. Why? Because it is the sword of the, say it, class, spirit, who is the efficient source of power for the sword and anything else that he is related to. This is the word spirit that you are familiar with, I suspect. Many of you at least. It's pneuma, which means breath. Go way back to the very first man and woman created in the Garden of Eden. There lays Adam, a lifeless creature, a lifeless being who's been formed from the dust of the ground. He's the only one who's as old as dirt. Are you with me? And there he lays, dead. A corpse, no life, no life. But God, and here's the Old Testament word for the New Testament word, pneuma. He breathed into man the breath of God that gives life. And so efficient is that power, that breath, that man became in that moment a living, 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 powerful soul. Now when you take the sword that he offers you as a gift, You're not just picking up another piece of metal like the enemy has. You're picking up something of superior strength and power because it is fashioned by and born from the pneuma, the very breath of God that empowers you against the evil one. And no piece of armor that he wears can stop his breath, his power. He's the new Does that not give hope to marriages that are breaking up, to students that are falling prey to this culture? Does that not give hope to you and me? And by the way, men, does that not give hope to us in a culture where lust is right in front of our eyes? We are tempted to lust every single hour of every day. Maybe it's a good place to stop and just say, guys, don't let the attendance go down this Saturday anymore. It needs to come up. I know some of the stuff that we're watching about how to deal with lust at the Saturday breakfast has a lot of depth to it, and you have to think hard when you watch it. But trust me, it's worth the effort. It is full of help and hope. And I've come this morning to say to you, 
you men who have fallen prey to lust, whether you've gotten into porn or not, if you're falling prey to lust, you're headed to porn, I promise you. Pull out. Come Saturday and learn. Pull out the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the breath of God that has power over what you are powerless over without the sword. Yo? So guys, sign up. Ladies, don't let your guy leave until he does. Got it? Elbow him right now and ask him, have you signed up? Or not? Now watch him. Stand, take the sword of the Spirit. And what is this sword? Which is the, say it, say the whole phrase, word of God. God is powerful. Numa, the breath of God, gives power. And the word is the very weapon of power that defeats the enemy in every battle. I've said it before dozens of times. I'll say it again probably on my last Sunday here. Don't ever forget it. The spirit and the word are inseparable. If you want to know the work of the Spirit, then get to the book because it is the Word that He uses and the principles of the Word. Others say, but He guides me and tells me what to do. Yeah, what does He guide you with? The Word of God. Hello? Good place for an amen. Yeah, but you say he gives me peace and that gives me a settled heart. Yeah, but where do you find that peace? In the promises of the word of God. You say, yeah, but he's more than the word. He gives me protection. He surrounds me. Yeah, what does he surround you with? We talked about it last Lord's Day. He surrounds your head with the word. And the word becomes your protection. You can't name a thing he does. He convinces me of my sin and convicts me when I fail, my God. And he certainly does. But what does he use to convince me and convict me? He uses the word. They are inexplicably and inextricably related and connected. The spirit and the word. What makes the word powerful? It is the breath. God. For the word is described in these terms. It is inspired. That is, it is God breathed. It's pneuma. The very breath of God. It's your power and mine. So how do I bring down the enemy? With the sword of the spirit, which is the powerful word of God. No wonder he has no chance. Of winning. Because it's the omnipotent word of God that he has to face when I bring it to bear in the battle. 
Okay, your turn. Don't get excited, we're not almost done. Your turn. So, I want to wrap it up this way. There are three kinds of people described in the Bible. Let me give them to you quickly. The natural, the carnal, and the spiritual. How do you determine what category people are in? And in fact, how would you determine this morning which category of those people are you in? There are two possible categories for me, and I once was in the third. I was born naturally. And what's the natural person like? What are those people like? They are far from God. They do not have, according to Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians, don't have time to take you there. They do not have the Spirit of God living in them. Therefore, they do not know the powerful Word of God. They cannot comprehend it without the breath of God who breathed that book for us. So there's this natural man without the Spirit, doesn't know the book. There's the carnal man. He's not without the Spirit. He has the Spirit, but Paul describes them to the church at Corinth as that's what you're like right now. Remember what he said to that baby church? I wanted to give you meat, but I could only feed you milk. Because you are carnal, you are yet babies. And it goes like this. They have the Spirit. They know enough of the gospel and have accepted the good news that Christ died for them and their sins. But they still live like they did before, naturally. As if they didn't have the Spirit. Do you ever do that? Yeah, I do. Probably have already about five times in this sermon. And you probably don't know where, but probably there. We're all carnal. Then there's a third kind. It's the spiritual. Who has the Spirit and is described by Paul to the church at Corinth as those people who are able to judge all things. You know what that means? Having the Spirit of God within them, they are able to discern the truth of God in the Word of God and use it in such a way as it brings great victory to them and all those who are around them. They are the spiritual. Now here's a question for you that ties into the sword of the Spirit. What weapon does each of these categories reach for in the heat of the battle. What weapon do you suppose the natural who don't have the Spirit of God reach for when they're in conflict? What do they reach for? They reach for what their father, the devil, reached for. Those without the Spirit of God reach for the same thing that the enemy reaches for. What is it? Do you remember what he was reaching for before time began, before man was created? Lucifer reached for the very throne of God. I will be God. He reached for the lofty places. 
when he thought he couldn't have it, what weapon did he reach for? Listen carefully. He drew to himself one-third of the hosts of heaven, one-third of the angel hosts of heaven, who became what we know today as the fallen angels in the demonic world, and one-third of all the heavenly creatures. And I have no idea how many that is, but it's a whole lot more than us. One-third of them he gathered to himself. I've come to say that's a weapon that the natural man reaches for. If I can just get enough people on my side, I'll bring God's work down. Is that not what Korah did in the Old Testament? Remember that guy? It wasn't just a leader or an elder of Israel that stood against and tried to stop the work of God through Moses' leadership in life. It wasn't just Korah. Who was it? Korah, listen, every eyeball here, you've got to get this, and 250 other men, leaders of Israel, I'll get as many as I can of my comrades and friends around me. And we will stand, by the way, as natural men duped into believing they were in the right. That's how the evil one works into battle. Whenever there's conflict, both think they're right, right? So that's the natural. What about the carnal? Paul, in essence, taught the church at Corinth, you who are carnal have the spirit, but the problem is, you, when you are in that carnal state, fight just the way the people did who are in the natural state. And just like Lucifer of old, you pick up the wisdom of man and the goals of man, and the people who will join in with that can be easily led into pick them up and draw against, stand against the people who are doing their best to be spiritual. Does this make some sense to you? Hello? Make some sense? How do the spiritual fight? What do they reach for? Please tell me after all this, you know. You know, don't you? Their conversation is not about how many I can get on my side. Because you know what they're thinking? They're thinking it doesn't make any difference how many are on my side or how many are on God's. One against thousands is superior when they're holding the efficient, sufficient, powerful word of God. The last church that Elaine and I served in interim ministry, the day we walked in the door, we found a battle inside the church. Thank God we didn't find that here. But we found it there. 
when we got there were ministry leaders and they had three different boards in the church there were boards that the leaders had to keep apart because they were ready to literally duke it out and fight one person before I got there was a godly lady in the church whom we got to know she said to one of the boards that was at war with another one group that outnumbered another she said but do you know what God says about what you're doing they had the audacity to answer we don't care about the Bible this is what we believe I know we don't go that far but we sure my beloved have a tendency to take out the sword of the flesh and fight the devil's way and every time you do that in your marriage in your relationship with your parents, students, in your fight against the world, in your fight against the flesh, every time you pull out the sword of the flesh, you lose. Is that a fair assessment? Pull out the powerful sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and you cannot fail. Because it's the breath of God. So here's the commitment I ask you to make. I like the way one translation puts it, so I put it on the screen for you. I use God's mighty weapons. That's what the spiritual man says. And he put it so powerfully. This is the phrase that's a little different, but is actually very correct to the original language. Not those weapons made by men. I refuse to fight in the flesh. I use God's mighty weapons to knock down the devil's strongholds. And all who care to sin. Just stand with me, please. I'd like to ask you to make a fresh commitment this morning. Especially those of you who are right in the middle of personal battle. As well as the whole church, there are always corporate battles we face and have to deal with. Make a fresh commitment. I'm not going to pull out the weapons that men use. I will not be a part of that. Is that a good challenge? I will not. I will lay hold the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and I will be more than a conqueror God's way. You can't leave the sword, the Word of God, out of the battle and win. Will you ask God, joining the deacons here in front and their wives who'd like to come and any others, would you ask God, out of these five, if he is pleased to help the men to be wise in choosing the one who will be the most effective at pulling out the word and using the sword when we're corporately or when he's alone with you in your personal battles counseling you, 
helping you win with the Word of God. God, give us the one who has the most importance.